Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time, and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number. And there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonder. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your God. Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you and to your, heart, your house. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you this morning for your words, and we ask that as we dwell in them, your spirit would dwell in us so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Today, we're taking a step away from the life story of Jesus to spend some time in the Hebrew Bible. Specifically, we're dwelling in the book of Deuteronomy which requires some unpacking before we can begin to approach it responsibly. Deuteronomy is traditionally understood to have been the words of Moses. It's in fact the end of Moses' story as the book closes with him passing his authority off to Joshua and entrusting the law to the priests. In this traditional understanding of the book of Deuteronomy, this is the final chance that Moses gets to impart instructions to the people of God. Modern scholarship, however, has a different understanding of the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, the name is a bit of a giveaway because in Greek, what Deuteronomy means is second law. This is a, fit, a fitting name for what is essentially a sequel to the other pre-existing books of law or instruction. 
You see, we even get clues about its authorship elsewhere in Scripture. In the second books of Kings, Josiah begins his reign over Judah in chapter 22. Verses 8 through 10 state, The high priest Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. When Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workers who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Shaphan informed the king, The priest Hilkiah has given me a book. Shaphan then read it aloud to the king. This series of events from 2 Kings lines up with the theories of modern scholars that Deuteronomy was actually written during the reign of Josiah. It's not so much a matter of the priests having actually found the lost laws, but the priests finding, wink nudge, lost laws. And if we know the history of Josiah's reign, we can understand why this revised version of the law was necessary. Josiah was placed on the throne after his father was murdered by his servants after a short two-year reign. To avoid following his father to an early death, Josiah and his advisors implemented sweeping reforms across the land as a result of finding these lost laws. This is why we see some populist-sounding things in Deuteronomy. Things like, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be charged with any related duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with the wife whom he has married. Or like, you shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall pay them their wages daily before sunset because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, they might cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. These laws are a way for Josiah to reform his land and to appease his people while still claiming to walk in the laws of his ancestors. All of which brings us back to today's reading. And the reason that I took you on this journey through Deuteronomy's history was so that we can understand that there probably isn't much value for us in reading these instructions literally. These instructions were written as part of a nation-building project that sought to organize civic life around the institution of the temple. It drew on a national mythos of military conquest of the land in which the people were living. It drew on the concept of a single unifying religion in a land rent asunder by sectarian violence. These are not the conditions of our time, and to read this as a one-to-one -one translation to our own context would be dangerous. Instead, I would suggest, as I have in the past, that we should look for the value behind the words. And the underlying value at work here seems to be quite simple. God should be the main priority of our lives. For the practice of worship in Josiah's kingdom, this meant that the first fruit you receive from your harvest goes as an offering to God. It was an act that acknowledged that before we care for our own needs, 
we give thanks to God, and we devote ourselves to God. But what does it mean for those of us not living in a kingdom built around devotion at a temple? How do we offer our first fruits to God? To answer these questions, I would direct our attention to the communion liturgy. When we're going through communion, right before we proclaim the mystery of faith, I have a line that reads, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice. This is how we offer our first fruits, through offering our very selves to God. Because we still do live in God's kingdom. It's a present reality that's all around us, even as it is a future hope that's still being realized. And in offering the best of ourselves as a sacrifice to God, we participate in God's work of fulfilling that hope. Now, prioritizing God almost guarantees that at some point we will be putting ourselves at odds with the rest of the world. We will find that we cannot submit to things like political parties because no party fully embodies the kingdom. We will find that our allegiance to civil governments will be limited by the injustices that they carry out. We will find that allegiance to things like brands or corporation pretty much goes out the window entirely. We will find that there are even moments that we will have to criticize the denominations to which we belong. Despite being a devoted Wesleyan, I feel that there's no declaration of faith in all of Christian history that demonstrates this principle quite so profoundly as Martin Luther's infamous declaration, my conscience is to God and no other. Undoubtedly, when we commit to such a radical notion of giving our first fruits to God, there will be times that it makes our lives more difficult. Such devotion does things like cause an eager young minister to develop such strong feelings about worship and the liturgical calendar that he ruffles the feathers of his congregation by not letting them sing the songs that they're used to singing. It can also make that same minister do foolish things like tell the president of his seminary or his bishop exactly what is on his mind, thereby jeopardizing institutional recognition or advancement. But the rewards are worth the struggles. In return for our first fruits, God gives us gifts, like seeing a child begin to think seriously about the questions of faith for the first time. Or seeing someone who's faithfully attended church their whole life suddenly see the Bible with fresh eyes. Or seeing the word of God find a new home in the heart of someone who has been unchurched. Then, at the end of the day, after seeing these seeds of the gospel come to harvest, you can rest with a clear conscience. You will know that you have done all that is in your power to co-create the kingdom with God. Because part of what God wants for us as fully realized human beings is that we can rest as God rested. And in seeking that rest, we once again commit ourselves to giving God our first fruits. We refuse to give the best of ourselves to the idol of busyness. We refuse to chop away at the roots of our being, 
Because we know that once we start cutting our soul into pieces that way, we'll never bear good fruit again. So as we walk through this season of Lent, consider engaging in the holy act of saying no. Reflect on the parts of your life that prevent you from being oriented toward God and ask how you can alter or eliminate them so that they would no longer be a stumbling block to your relationship with God. We only have one shot at this life, and the longer we delay making God the priority, the more likely it is that we will never get the chance to do so. So grab hold of your faith now and step into the kingdom. Amen. Would you pray with me? Christ Jesus, you are priest, king, and prophet. Help us to radically devote ourselves to you. Accept us as a living sacrifice and transform us for the work of your kingdom. Make us the instruments through which your love and reconciliation will be proclaimed. Amen.